chapter 14 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 14. According to a wedding planning website, brides.com, in 2021, the cost of a sit-down five-course meal at a wedding reception will run you between 165 to $200 per person, not including alcohol. If you include alcohol, depending on the type of friends you have, it might be a lot more than that. But imagine having a large group of people tell you they're going to come and you commit to 165 to $200 ahead and at the last minute those people cancel. Don't show up. That would probably upset you a bit, I would think. That's a situation in the parable that Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 14. Jesus was invited to the dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And it's not just any dinner. There's, there's quite a few people at this meal. And it's a setup. The whole meal is a setup. The whole purpose of the meal was to invite Jesus to come to this meal on a Sabbath day and put him in a situation where a man was near him who needed healing and to see if Jesus would heal, and in their minds, the minds of the Pharisees, violate the Sabbath. They heard that Jesus had done that at least on a few occasions, and so they wanted to see for themselves, is he really a Sabbath violator? So they set him up. They situated him in such a spot that all the leading Pharisees could look out and look and see exactly what Jesus was doing, so nothing could take place in secret. Jesus, knowing the situation, knowing that it's a setup, knowing that the man next to him needs to be healed, he has dropsy, or what we would today call edema, throughout his body and his limbs, challenges the Pharisees and the Sadducees by asking them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And no one will say a word. They don't answer the question, and Jesus goes ahead and heals the man, on the Sabbath, and then confronts them about their lack of compassion. Asking them the question, if you had an animal or a child who fell into a well, would you not go and get them on the Sabbath day? And the answer would be, of course they would, but no one would answer him a word. Their attitudes and their actions toward others revealed the condition of their heart. They didn't have a a heart for the things of God. They weren't thinking about... uh, the love of one another. They weren't thinking that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus begins to kind of go around the room and addressing different people. There's the guests and there's the host. And he first addresses the guests and he talks to them about the issue of pride that they have as he observed them coming in and trying to see where's the most advantageous place to sit. Where's the seat that's going to make do me the most good, see me as the most honor, and that's the seat that I want. And and Jesus confronted their pride and and uh, does that because, according to verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is clearly talking in terms of eternity here. If you humble yourself, you are exalted to heaven because it takes humility to come to saving faith. Or if you exalt yourself, I'm great and wonderful, I don't need anything, uh, you're going to be humbled when you get to hell. After addressing the crowd, Jesus then turns to the host. 
And Jesus uh, confronts the fact that with the exception of Jesus and the man with dropsy, everybody else that was invited to this party was there because it would somehow be advantageous to the host. It would up his social status somehow. And Jesus confronts that and tells him, you should give a party and invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, which had been the furthest thing from his mind because he would have saw all those people as cursed by God. He said, you should invite those because they have no means with which to pay you back. And that would reveal a heart of generosity and a true heart of, of the gospel. And if you have that type of heart, then you'll be rewarded in the end that God will reward you for your generosity here because of the type of heart you have. Clearly his heart was wrong. I imagine at that point in time, Jesus has healed a man. He's confronted the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's then addressed the area of, of pride in the guest and in the host himself. I imagine at that moment it was kind of quiet as everybody looked around at each other going, this is awkward. This is not very... This is, uh, this is not the kind of meal we were expecting. And finally, at that moment, one of the guests breaks the silence, apparently trying to return attention to the meal, get things back on track, so to speak. And he makes a toast-like statement in verse 15. It says, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard him say this, talking about the resurrection and the kingdom, said... When he heard him say this, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Which sounds like a great statement. And there's truth in it. The problem is the man who gives that no doubt believes that everybody in the room, with the possible exception of Jesus, will go to the, is going to go to the kingdom. Because they're Pharisees, they're lawyers, they're experts in the law, they believe that they're the ones that are most right with God. And as those who are the most right with God, in fact, there's nobody that knows the law better, there's nobody that's more righteous than them, that they will therefore be clearly in the kingdom. I don't think there was a Pharisee who doubted for a moment that he would be in the kingdom. They all believed that. They all believed that some of, some of these Jews won't, won't get there because they're not righteous like we are. Whatever the intent of the speaker, Jesus is going to use his statement to inform the guests at the party that their place in the kingdom is not nearly as secure as they think it is. They think it's a lock, and Jesus is saying it's far from a foregone conclusion that you're going to be part of the kingdom. In fact, by the end of this, he's basically going to say, you're not getting in. You think you are, but you won't. Their animosity toward Jesus revealed the genuine condition of their heart, proving that they were not, in fact, citizens of the kingdom. Because a citizen of the kingdom could never treat the, the king of kings and lord of lords the way they're treating him. So Jesus seizes the opportunity to give the parable of the invited guests. That's the title of the parable I'm giving it, the invited guests. The titles of parables, whether it's in your study Bible or not, are not inspired I was inspired for that title, but it's not not by the Holy Spirit. So maybe it was a spirit, it just wasn't the Holy Spirit. So invited guests, you can call it whatever you like. He's already spoken about the superiority of compassion, the necessity of humility, and the blessedness of generosity. Now Jesus speaks of the dreadfulness of indifference. The dreadfulness of indifference. 
So he begins to tell a story at this dinner party. It's a parable. It's a story that has a point. Jesus is making a point here. He's responding to something that was just said. And what was just said is, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. So just the context in which Jesus is giving this story of a great feast, he's referring to the feast that comes after the second coming of Christ. When he, or the, the, after rather, the, after the rapture of the church, when we are taken up into heaven and we have this marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. That's the meal that would be in, in focus here because that's the meal that takes place in the kingdom of God. Synonymously, being in the meal, being part of that meal in the kingdom of God is synonymous with being saved because only the saved will be guests at that dinner and the unsaved won't. Jesus has already made that clear earlier that there will be those who are peering in the window seeing the the patriarchs of the Jewish faith in there and many Gentiles in there, yet they themselves will be excluded from the from the meal because they hadn't received Christ. So verse 14, or I'm sorry, verse 16 rather says, he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. It's a major party. Your version may say big or great. The Greek word that is used there is mega. And it's where we get our English word mega. It's a huge guest list. Lots of food. And wedding feasts, uh, and that's, we're not certain that's exactly what this is, but it fits the context being the marriage supper of the Lamb, being the background for what Jesus is talking about. Marriage feasts, wedding feasts, wedding receptions could last a week in that day and age. So it's not, you know, two hours, people have dinner and then they go home. This is all day for almost a week or more. Uh, so it's a, a huge deal. Great expense. Uh, lots of planning. And in that culture at that time, and even well before it, when someone would give a party like this, there would be two invitations. The first one would go out announcing that the party was coming. We would call it today a save the date invitation. We would say, okay, save the date. This, this, this important date is going to come up and you'll get a, a more formal invitation later. But for them, that first invitation, that save the date was the formal invitation. So they would have RSVP'd to that. Yes, I will be there. I will be at the wedding so that the host could plan on how many people are coming and make sure he had everything that he needed. Traces back at least as far as the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 5, Queen Esther invites Xerxes, her husband, and Haman to dinner at her place. And then in chapter 6, the servants go out to Haman and say, dinner's ready, it's now time to come. That was the second part of the invitation. The first was save the date. The second one, okay, it's now ready, it's time to show up. So the, the guts of the parable is the second part of the invitation. It's now time to show up. Since, uh, again, we mentioned this is the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you were to look back in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, well, we'll go back to back up a little bit. Uh, verse 24, he said, To strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, will not be able. 
Once the head of the house is shut, gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And then he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. This is speaking of the marriage supper. And behold, some are last will be first and some are first will be last. So Jesus has already made it clear at this wedding feast, not all the Jews are going to make it. And now in the parable, he's going to make that point even uh, once again in this marriage supper. The man in the parable invites many, again, to save the date. The original guests on the list for the marriage supper were was the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. They're invited to come. And they had multiple save-the-date reminders throughout their history. They started, really, in the garden, but as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, started with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3... God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be huge. All this is going to come from your loins. In Genesis 17, God continues verses six and eight through eight. God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make uh, nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So this is the first save the date invitation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your nation is going to be wonderful. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Another save the date reminder came through Moses. As Moses is approaching the end of his life, they're camped out on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The the nation of Israel is about ready to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land. Moses is recording the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 18, 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, which was the ministry of Jesus. I'm only telling you what the Father told me to tell you. The words that I speak are not my own, but are my Father's. So that was the ministry of Jesus. And even in his life, people said, Well, he's the prophet, referring to Deuteronomy 18.18. The next save the date reminder came through King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. God said to David, when your days are complete, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And a few verses later, verse 16 God says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, David, somebody from your line, from your seat, is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. This is another save the date. I'm sending the king. I'm 
sending a prophet. I'm going to bless the world. I'm sending a king. And then the save the date was spoken of by the prophets, specifically Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the save the date was, I'm going to send somebody who's going to rule over forever. And this is how, and it's going to be this great, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And then Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, describe the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the... I'm sorry, let me back, my eye dropped. Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted will also increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. When John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah? We look for another. Jesus said, you go tell John what you've seen. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's right out of Isaiah 29. This describes the ministry of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This was, again, part of the ministry of Jesus. To save the day, I'm going to send this one. And then Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy concerning John the Baptist and Jesus. I'm going to send the, the messenger to go before you, and then the king is going to come. And then Jesus shows up, which is the second part of the invitation. He's here, and he's offering. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the party is ready to start. Come to the party. The save the date went out to the nation of Israel throughout their history. They RSVP'd, but when they, the day of the party arrived, they all began to make their excuses why they couldn't come. Into the parable, verse 17. And at the dinner hour, he sent out his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. This is the arrival of Jesus. Come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The dinner's ready. But, verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. Everybody on the guest list. Nope, can't come. Here's my excuse. Here's why I can't come. Yes, I I, I got to save the dates. I got all the reminders. And yes, I was planning on coming, but now I'm not going to. To do that socially would have been unheard of. It would have been a tremendous social blunder to have RSVP to the save the date invitation and then on the day of the party say, I oh, know I'm not coming. And then to give the lame excuses that the people gave. 
Jesus gives three of them in this parable, but these three are representative of the greater excuses that are used and would apply to everybody that was invited. The first excuse is the second half of verse 18. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Well, we'll talk about it in a moment, the foolishness of this. I bought land, now I need to go look at it? I already own the land, now I need to go look at it. I call this the land before the Lord excuse. The land before the Lord. It boiled down to priority of investments. What's important to me? My portfolio, my bottom line, my retirement, my accumulation of wealth, my assets. What's important to me? That's that's my priority in life. And all of that comes before the Lord. The Lord comes somewhere down the line from that. It's like the rich young man who came to Jesus and wanted to know how he could have eternal life. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, said, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? And he, that's Jesus, said to him, Why do you call, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go sell every." all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. But the young man heard this statement. He went away grieving for he owned much property. Jesus went on to tell his disciples in the next few verses, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the rich man tends to trust in his riches and his wealth. I have everything I need. I don't, I, I, I can take God or leave God, but in his proper spot because my wealth is all that I need. Why is this true? Turn back to Luke chapter 12. This is actually the parallel passage to the Matthew passage. Luke chapter 12 verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's important to you? Where's your priorities? Whatever's important to you, that's what you treasure. Or whatever you treasure, that's what's important to you. That's where your heart is. He's like the guy who says, I'm not going to church because they're just after my money. He's more focused on storing up treasures on earth than he is storing up treasures in heaven. And by the way, it's not true that we're just after your money. I have no idea who gives or what they give. As far as I know, there's only one person in our church that does know, and he keeps the books, so you get a record at the end of the year of what you gave, so you could deduct it from your tithe, or from your taxes. But other than that, nobody keeps a record, and as far as I know, nobody's ever come to your door and said, I'm here for the tithe. Unless they had a little badge that said elder something on it. We've never done that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's fine. God has blessed many people to be very wealthy. Some of the wealthiest men in the Bible belong to God. And that's great and wonderful if God blesses you with that. But that cannot be what you serve. If you serve the wealth, then you cannot serve God. You can't love them both equally. You're going to love one more than the other. So some people reject the invitation because in their heart it's land before the Lord. It's the investments before I invest in Christ. The second excuse is in verse 19. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try to try them out because uh, please consider me excused. Again, I've already purchased 10 head of oxen. A yoke is two. So five yoke is 10 oxen, 25,000 pounds of meat. I've, I've already purchased these oxen. Now I have to go look at them. I've never bought a car I haven't seen. So it again, seems like a pretty lame excuse. I call this the job before Jesus excuse. Oxen were beasts of burden. You would use that for work. You would use it to plow fields, to drag wagons, to drag threshing sleds, to pull plows, to move massive grinding wheels. Something to do with labor. So for this guy, it's all about the job. His identity and his security is wrapped up in what he does for a living. We can kind of relate to that to some degree, especially men, because when you meet a man for the first time, almost always when then the first five questions that you have, you ask is, what do you do? What's your job? Because that's your identity. And they start to tell you what your job is, what their job is. And you're either surprised or you're not really surprised. I'm a rodeo clown. Really? I can't believe that. It's shocking. Yeah, I got it. You know. So this man's all about the job. He worked to live and lived to work. Now, working's important. I want to negate that. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat either. Maybe you think about the next time you see a guy standing on the side of the road with a sign as who's not willing to work. Maybe some of them aren't capable of working. I get that. But some just aren't willing to work. Jesus said, or God's word said he shouldn't eat either then. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own family, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So a guy who says, I'm not going to work, I don't want to provide for my family, I'm not going to do it, God says, that guy's worse than a non-believer. He's supposed to provide. So working is important. Earning something to provide for your family, all those are important, providing Food, shelter, all of those things are important. But there's a balance, and the balance is found in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus repeats that phrase that he used about the rich young man. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where are you storing up treasure? It's all—it's great if God has blessed you and you're storing up treasures on earth that you're using for His glory. That's wonderful. But you should be your main priority is to store up treasures in heaven. Truth be told, these were illogical excuses even then. In that day, 
No one would have bought a piece a plot of land without going and looking at it first. They would want to know if can I plant on this? Is it buildable? Is there a water source? They would want to know those things. It's pretty rare, less except for the last couple of years, for people to buy houses they've never seen. Now, if you want to buy a house in Idaho, you better buy it on the internet because you're not going to get another chance. By the time you get there to see it, eight other people will have been looking at it. One have already bought it, remodeled it, and sold it to another person. So those are bizarro times where people are buying houses on the phone. Look, okay, here, look, here's the bathroom, here's the kitchen. Okay, I'll buy it. Sold. In normal situations, particularly in that day and age, nobody would have bought a piece of land without seeing it. Uh, there were crooks then too. We've all been places, maybe it's a hotel or resort or something like that, where you saw a picture and then you got there and you saw the reality. When Trish and I were on our honeymoon and uh, we went to Kauai and we were going to be there four or five days, I don't remember now. Uh, we had booked this room with this big picture window overlooking the ocean and it was to be this bungalow right on the beach and the brochure had it had the picture overlooking the ocean and the bungalows on the beach that's what we want we're going to splurge and we got there and we were really excited and we checked in and we went down to our bungalow and there was one window in the place it was that wide it was this long and it was fog slats of glass and there was an air conditioning in the window or in the wall that sounded like a train and we went Where's the big window overlooking the ocean? And I went back up to the lobby and they happened to have the same brochure on their desk and I pulled it off and I said, we thought we were getting this. And they said, oh no, that's our deluxe room. I said, well, look at the way you have this laid out. What would you think? They said, yeah, we can see your point. They said, well, we have one deluxe room. You can go look at it. And so we went and looked at it. And and before we went to look at it, they said, it's $150 a night more. And we're newlyweds. We're poor. This is ridiculous. But we went and looked at it, opened up the window, opened up the door, and this massive window overlooking the ocean. But this is the room. This is the room in the picture. This is what we want. And we went back, and they felt bad. And said, you can have it for the rest of the week for 100 bucks. Got it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've gotten over it. It's been 39 years. But... Uh, <laughs> I thought I was over it. Um, I mean, you can take a picture of a piece of land, right? And say, you're looking at this piece, this picture. It's a beautiful piece of land. I'm going to buy this land. And you go to the property and it's on an 80 degree slope. You go, well, what am I going to do with this? So no one would have bought a piece of land there without looking at it. And besides that, he already bought it. I own this land. I've already purchased it. So I can't come to your wedding feast. Well, why can't you go tomorrow to look at the land and come to the wedding feast today? Same thing with the oxen. I've already purchased the oxen. If you can afford at that day and age to buy 10 oxen, you have a plan in mind for them. You have a business that you're using them for, and you're not a fool and just say, well, I'm just going to buy 10 oxen without ever seeing them. And besides, he's already purchased them. It's nothing's going to keep him. They're still going to be his after the wedding feast. So it's, it's kind of foolish. Many people give pretty bad excuses today for why Jesus is not the priority of their life. Pastor, I would come to church more, but I just have to work. 
You know, I get that. I understand. Some people have to work on Sundays. It happens. I get it. But there's other ways to serve the Lord as well. One of the statements I get, Pastor, I'd, I'd love to serve more, but I just don't have time. I'm too busy at work. To which I like to reply, well, let's pray that God makes you less busy at work. And they typically don't want me to do that. They never say, oh, that's great. Yes. Let's go. God, give them a new job. No, wait, 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 time out. That's not what I asked for. Some jobs are very demanding. We have a number of business owners within our church who know after 40 hours of work, you're just starting because you got to run your business. Not only do you have to run your business, you have to do all the other behind the scenes stuff that nobody recognizes. You have to do all the paperwork and everything. But we certainly have people here who know what it's like to work long hours and still find time to serve the Lord. I mean, we've had elders who've worked 60, 70 hours a week and still come in and serve the Lord. It's a matter of priorities. That's what it boils down to. We all make time for what we think is important. What we value. If these people had been offered an all-expense-paid trip to a Mediterranean beach resort, guaranteed they all would have found the time. It wouldn't, hey, you got the all-expense-paid trip to this resort on the island of Crete. They wouldn't have said, you know, I just bought a piece of land. I can't go do it. I can't do that. You know, I've got these oxen sitting in the barn eating hay. I can't, I can't go do that. They would have went, score. Let's go. They pretend to honor God, but God is not their priority. In truth, they're only interested in what he can do for them, and they're not interested at all in how they might serve him. I've met a number of people who give their job as an excuse why they can't serve the Lord, yet they find all kinds of time to do many things that are non-work related. I knew one guy who, who never had time to serve the Lord, yet he had time to play simultaneously in three different softball leagues. Well, it's a matter of priority. You could give up even one of the softball leagues and find time to serve the Lord. We all make time for what's important of us. And for many, Jesus just isn't important. Even among those who are Christians, a lot of other things become excuses for why they can't serve the Lord. I'm just so busy. I just have so much on my plate. I'd love to, but I just don't have the time. And really, it's just a matter of priority. Jesus isn't the priority. The third excuse is the one that sounds the most legit. It's in verse 20. Another said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. I call this family before faith. Family before faith. It's a tough one. Right? Because, listen, we're to love our families and we're not to neglect our families and far too many families where neglect is going on and there's warped priorities. One of the saddest stories I've ever heard was the, about the seminary student who was working really hard in seminary, spent four years in seminary trying to learn the material, get, get, get good grades. And after four long years of study, he came home one day and his wife had cleaned out all of her stuff from their apartment, took all of his seminary books, piled them in the middle of the bed, put a note that said, you obviously love these more than you, me, you love me. You can sleep with them for now. I hope you're happy together. There's a man who was 
giving this excuse that he was trying to serve the Lord, but he neglected his family. Neglected his most important ministry, which was his marriage. We're certainly not to neglect our families. In fact, one of the signs that a man is mature in his faith is he takes care of his family. It's one of the characteristics, the qualities, the requirements of an elder. However, family has become probably the most common excuse for not serving the Lord. I'm too busy with my family. I have to, I got the kids to take to school and we're doing this or we're doing this study. We're homeschooling. We've got all this going on and I just don't have time. It's apparently pretty easy to convince oneself that, that you're doing the best for your children while actually sending them the wrong message. What is the most important thing you want to teach your children? What's the one thing when your children leave your home that you want them to understand the most? I submit to you, if you, if the answer you gave is, I want my children to know that I love them, that you are giving a very wonderful, mistaken priority. Yes, it's wonderful that you want your kids to know that you love them. But more important than that is that they know God loves them and that they love God. That's infinitely, eternally more important. It's not that you shouldn't make sure that they love you. You should, and you should be throwing I love you's around in your house like it's a Frisbee. But it's most important that they know that God loves them. And that He died for them to go to heaven. When it comes to loving your family, there's nothing more important than pointing them to Christ. There's nothing more loving than you can do. No academic achievement, no athletic ability, no artistic expression is more important than them knowing Christ. I know parents who want their child to earn a sports scholarship to college. That's wonderful if your kid gets it. But if they get it at the expense of a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not worth it. I know parents who pressure their kids to do well in school so they can test high and get an academic scholarship. If they get an academic scholarship and they get accepted to an engineering program or a medical program or whatever, that's great. But if they get that at the expense of a relationship with Christ, it's worthless. It doesn't matter how smart you are, what kind of grades you are, you get if you don't know Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of job you get and how successful you are in the eyes of the world if you don't know Christ. And I know many good intended, intentioned parents who want their kids to excel athletically or academically, but they don't make the Lord a priority. And everything else takes second, everything else takes the priority. You know, my kid can't come to Adventure Club. They've got sports. My kid can't come to church. They've got sports. If you don't think that sending a message to your children about the priority of life, you're wrong. They're learning a priority from you of what's important to you. When our daughter was growing up, she loved theater. That was her bent. was musical theater. And we had her plugged into some musical theater groups and we would get involved. In fact, I did a number of shows with her where I was performing. 
And it was fun and we loved it and it was great. But we didn't, if when a rehearsal came up on Sunday or a show came up on Sunday, said we won't be there. We'll be there at this time. We won't be there before that. Well, you've got to be. I can't. Because there's a priority here and that's not on the highest priority for us. Yes, it's something my daughter loves. It's something she enjoys, something she's good at, but not at the expense of knowing Christ. Priority is to be evident in our lives. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love God more than our own families. Look back and, or look, drop down to verse 26, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we know Jesus isn't saying that you have to actually have animosity towards them because of other things that he said. He's in, in essence saying that our love for him needs to exceed our love for our families so much that it appears by comparison that the love for our families is hatred. Again, it's all a matter of priorities. In the end, those who were invited to the feast turned down the second invitation because they just didn't want to go. They tried to justify it with their excuses, which were pretty bad excuses. It's really a matter of priorities. And God, Christ are not a priority. Israel had been invited. They were the first. They were the first to receive the gospel. The Messiah came to them first. Taught them first. He showed his great compassion and his amazing power to them first. He offered them the kingdom first. And they rejected the offer. But ultimately it's because they didn't really love God. He wasn't their priority. Their priority was land, job, family. They wanted a large estate, a fat bank account, and the relationship of their dreams. Not necessarily bad things to want. But when you want them more than you want God, it's an eternal problem. So Israel, for the most part, rejects the second invitation. So the invitation then shifts to others. Verse 21. The slave came back and reported to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. It's hard to doubt, hard to blame him. It's gone to all this trouble and expense and in the context of the marriage supper, the expense that God goes to to invite people to the marriage supper is the death of his son. That's the cost of this meal. And then for them to reject the invitation and give frivolous excuses makes the master understandably angry. The banquet's ready though and he's determined to fill his house with people. People who will be happy to be there. So the invitation then goes out to those who would be considered the rejects of Judaism. Verse 21, there in the middle, and he said to a slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, which is the same group of people that Jesus said in chapter, or in verse 13 to the, to the host, these are the kinds of people that you invite to the feast. 
And he would have bristled at that because they are cursed by God in his mind. So Jesus would say, you go to the cursed. You go to those that society has, dis, has, uh, has disavowed, has, has rejected. You go to them and you invite them. Can you imagine if you're one of these beggars and you come to this feast? This would have been the greatest day of your life. An amazing thing would have been happy. Or would have happened. Amazing sights. And these people were not too proud. What, I'm invited to this feast? Of course I'll come. I'm happy to come. Thank you. They would have been grateful. Verse 22, Then the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. And still there's room. The poor in spirit, the poor in body have come and they haven't rejected it. They were humble enough to receive the invitation. But even with them, there's still room. There's still seats here. The dining hall is not filled. So, verse 23, the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Now it's leave town, go outside of town. This is pointing to the gospel going to Gentiles. That's us. The Jews don't want it. Get the rejects of society. They come in. Now go outside of town and you get the Gentiles to come in. It's dinner time and you're going to be coming into this feast. And he tells us why in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. I'm going to fill up my kingdom. And there will be no room for those people. They're going to miss the feast with the master. They rejected Christ's invitation. Therefore, God rejected them. They will go to a different gathering. A gathering they don't want to be a part of, but they have no choice. They can't reject this one. They'll be gathered together in a lake of fire where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Those who don't accept Christ's invitation ultimately will be rejected by Him. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. The condition of a man's heart is revealed by his attitudes and actions towards others and his acceptance of Christ's gracious gracious invitation. And when the characteristic of somebody's life is one of pride and one of greed... And when there's a lack of compassion, and that's the characteristic of their life, they are showing that they don't know Christ. They're showing that God has not transformed their heart. Yes, we all have moments when those things are true. And when they are, we need to confess that and repent. But if that's the characteristic of your life, then it's showing that you don't know Him. And if you're not trusting in Christ... You're rejecting his invitation and you will be on the list that will be rejected by him. It's a serious thing. And that's the point that Jesus was trying to get across to those in that crowd. All these religious people who thought they were part of the kingdom. Hey, we're all going to be part of the kingdom. When that man said, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God, there probably was a loud amen. With all those people who thought their place was secure. And Jesus is showing them, It's not because you're making every excuse you can to reject the offer of the kingdom that's coming from Christ. And that's the only place the offer comes from. There's no other offer coming. 
So he's challenging the religious people of the day not to think that their place is secure. There is a secure place for them, but it's not in the kingdom. It's not what they're expecting. They're to be the ones on that day that say, oh, time out. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons? Your name do many wonderful works. And he'll say, depart from me. I don't know you. Don't let that be you. It's important that you examine your own heart and your own mind, your own life, and see if the characteristics of a child of God are present in your life. If they're not, make sure you get that right. And let us be clear that we are to tell people about Christ as the only way to get to heaven. There's not a plan B. It's not enough. It's not. It's it's not right thinking to say, well, you know, they just don't believe the way I believe, but that's okay. If they don't believe the Bible, it's not okay. It's it's eternally damning. There's a lot of religious people in the world that are not going to go to heaven. There's a lot of religious people in churches all over the world today who are not going to heaven. Because they don't really know Christ. And the truth is their life shows that. So what's your life say about you? To show you belong to Christ? Listen, I know many of you in here, and yes, your lifestyle does. That's great. Keep that up. Keep that up. Be that example. Let Christ continue to mold you and make you and shape you into the man or woman he wants you to be. If you're not sure, please make sure. If you're not sure you know Christ, please come talk to me. Talk to somebody else so we can help you. Don't miss it. Don't just think because for whatever reason that you're a Christian, if the evidence is lacking. If there's no evidence, please come let us help you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being able to come to you. and Father, thank you for the invitation to come to you and be invited into your banquet. Father, we know it takes a humility of heart and mind for us to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Father, if there's one here struggling with that, that you would break their pride. You would slay the pride that is keeping them lost. And Father, that they may humble themselves before you and come to saving faith, receiving the invitation to be part of the marriage supper. Father, you know every heart in the room. Just pray that you would make that clear. And Father, if there's anyone here, I pray that they will come to saving faith. Father, for those of us who know you, may we live out our faith. Father, we'll do that imperfectly until we're with you. We know that. Father, help us to do all that we can to glorify you and let our lives reflect. Even in our sin, we can reflect the work of God in our life by the way we repent, seek forgiveness. And Father, may you be glorified to strengthen your people and build your church. Father, we pray for our teenagers and children in our church that none of them would miss the importance of the gospel. That, Father, whatever priorities are being played out in their 
homes that, Father, you will make yourself the number one priority. That they'll come to saving faith. Father, they'll make their faith their own. And Lord, you'd be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask you to remain?